Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Freedom International live stream. And I want to call this as the spring edition, just because we took a break for the whole month of March and we just needed to do that. You know, sometimes you have a lot of conversation going on and in your life, you just needed to take a step back and then reconnect with your family. And I did that. And I'm just happy that I traveled all the way to the Philippines and now I can share you a little bit of what I have observed through my family and friends of what's been going on. And first, I'd like to welcome our guest, Matt Eric, and thank you so much, Matt. And of course, my co-host, Roy, from the Awakening Podcast. And I welcome also John from the Podcasters Wellness Alliance, and thank you. And for those who didn't make it because, you know, we're just restarting again, I, I, I hope and pray that they're in good health. So Matthew is a journalist and a co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation, and he's the editor-in-chief of Canadian Patriot Review, senior fellow at the American University of Moscow and the BRI, and that's the um, that's what it stands for, but stands for the, Matthew will correct me again with that, at the Belton Road Initiative. There you go. Belton Road Initiative, which is so crucial for each and every one of us to understand. Expert from Road News, and I love that Road News as well. So Matthew has published so many scientific articles with 21st century science and technology, Nexus, Principia Scientifica, and a regular author in strategic culture, Washington Times, The Cradle and Global Research. And he really is a prolific writer and speaker. And he has all that untold history of Canada, different books, series, and then The Clash of Two Americas, which is really started volume one, two, and three, and plus so many, especially when it comes to us understanding what's going on in the psyops for China or Russia or who knows, maybe India will be added to that psyop, so who else? So she, our guest today is truly been one of my favorite uh, go-to to, for me to get the real thing, okay? Although I always have to depend on my connection with the source, with God to let me understand what's really going on. So I strongly recommend that you all be connected with Matthew. And Matthew, so, and first, let me also thank my family and friends for letting me interrupt their busy lives and just seeing me, hugging them, listening to their voice, singing with them, eating with them, the delicious food that I miss. I usually don't binge on Filipino food, even if there are stores in America, because there's nothing like eating with your family right in the Philippines. So thank you so much. And so, for today's topic, I thought how to save a dying republic, which is uh, been um, Matthew's latest series of articles in his Substack. And what Matthew, why I wanted to do that is because in these current times, we really need to know how. We need to know the steps or how we can be engaged in our own little way and in a bigger way so that we just don't end up just complaining complaining about things. And in this series, I know that in the first part, it, it, it's now part 
four parts, but who knows, not you may add another part. So in the first part is that choosing what reality you live in, introducing Hamilton, part two is introducing Hamilton's American system, and part three is Lincoln and the Greenbacks, and the part four is, is John Quincy Adams and anti-imperial origins of the Monroe Doctrine. And so if you type in math Eric, it's like, boom, you get a lot of links. So it's only up to us, to you, to educate yourself. Don't let anyone educate you. You own that. You have to empower yourself. So Matthew, thank you. And let me just rest now and I'll let you start in the lighter way because I know you've been traveling. So please share us what you have observed in the different countries. What's your highlight? What's the joy that you saw? And what's the concern that you have experienced from different people? Well, Grace, as always, thank you for this most generous of introductions. Um, you really maybe you put a lot of hats on my head, but I, uh, I'll, I'll try to not, not make my neck uh, break. Uh, but thank you very much. And uh, indeed, the, the newest series of articles um, has emerged out of what I felt to be a bit of a need right now to clarify certain ambiguities in a point of, of high confusion, especially in the United States, which is going through a multitude of a perfect storm of sorts, mm -hmm. where on the one hand, we have an economic collapse, which is many decades um, coming. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen, you know, even with the the you know under trump it didn't happen under obama it didn't happen under COVID. it didn't happen under bush uh this has been something which you could say has been ongoing since really the murder of john f kennedy and i think that that's a good inflection point in terms of the trajectory of the united states and the the broader transatlantic world at large that had given so much uh to defeating the the fascist hitler project of the 1930s and 40s um, which was originally intended to be the enforcement mechanism, fascism, um, of a new world order that didn't happen the way some, certain very powerful institutions in the city of London, in Wall Street, had wished that it, it unfolded. And a lot of people have been confused about that history. They don't understand what, what John F. Kennedy was invoking as he emerged on the scene, not by himself, but with a network of like-minded people within the institutions of America who recognized this um, fascist fifth column today known as the deep state that had been built up over, over many generations within the heart of the Washington establishment. You know, Eisenhower warned about this on his outgoing speech, little, little, <laughs> too, too little, too late for Eisenhower. <clears throat> but they, they don't know what JFK was invoking economically, politically, diplomatically, foreign policy wise in terms of his approach to fighting for the right for nations of Asia, India, Africa, South America to have access to full development, full spectrum economies, uh, to, to remove the power of the, the Federal Reserve through initiating um, a government directed form of, of economic policy. These things are, have been forgotten. They, they don't. And because of this lack of knowledge of our recent history, people don't know what what Bobby Kennedy um, senior was was fighting to invoke in 1968 when he was killed. You know, you, it's accessible if you read Bobby Kennedy's uh, towards a, a, a newer world, um, which was his sort of policy outline. Uh, but nobody reads it. You know, it hasn't been republished since 1975. So nobody has access to, or they don't they don't know how to look for the original writings of people who were making history and who were cut down before they could, they could accomplish many of their tasks. So um, what happened was a, a coup 
And we, our, our economy went through a fundamental and unnatural perverse transformation in a real, really, you could say 1971. And so the book series that you, you outlined, The Clash of the Two Americas, from which I derive a lot of the content for my newest uh, series of articles on uh, preserving a dying or saving a dying, a dying republic, which has part five that just was released yesterday on The Last American Vagabond. Um, it, it, it's sort of where I'm trying to give people a sense of, okay, who the enemy is, what, what is the importance of America and grand strategy from 1776 until the present? Because, you know, again, it's not, it's not right to, even though the, the U.S. has done a lot of evil, you know, I'd say, you know, most of the coup d'etats, assassinations of foreign government leaders uh, over the past 80 years have been done, unfortunately, and, you know, through the United States, the CIA, the military, industrial, Navy, intelligence, other things, the FBI, carrying out its own share of, of murder, um, including leaders within America itself, right? Um, Fred Hampton, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, we, we mentioned a bunch. Um, despite that, people have, have forgotten how to focus on, okay, so what are the enemies of the Republic? What did, what did the Republic originally break away from back in 1776, right? Very basic questions that we should be, we should have a, a deeper set of sense of importance. Um, and, and with that sense, we could we could really, really firmly understand, well, what are the conditions at play today in the world as we go through a breakdown of the $1.2 quadrillion derivatives bubble, you know, basically fictitious capital built around unpayable debts that have been metastasizing since 19, the early 1970s, um, which will default. They can do not but default. That's what the, the, the current, you know, whether it's, it's personal debts, national debts, consumer commercial debts, whatever that's been bundled, you know, declared assets or equity inside of the banks that have been then uh, gambled upon, insured upon, gambled upon, and then, on, you know, on top of that, uh, called derivatives. All of that has been designed to blow. It's, it's, a, it's a weapon of mass economic destruction set up as a time bomb within the, the once former viable industrial economies of the West that have, have been hollowed out Right, we've lost our ability to economically stand on our on our, on our two feet, whether in Europe, Canada, the U.S., and uh, and so people don't have have been led to believe that their enemy is China or it's Russia or some combination of China and Russia or Venezuela, and I mean the simplicity of thinking that has has um, induced people to believe that those countries that are trying currently to survive the the current storm and not kill off their people or, or destroy their ancient heritage on some altar, to, to believe that these cultures and nations are their enemy is the, is the highest tragedy and folly. So I'm trying to clarify, well, who is, what, what is this oligarchy thing? You know, what is this thing that's been running these international deep states around the world uh, and have been trying to, to do what they failed to do in 1945, which is get a one world government under a fascist a technocratic policy to enforce a depopulation program. That's what was attempt, attempted due to, due, due to patriots in America and, and other nations, but primarily America. Um, that was thwarted. And today, again, we have a, a reawakening of that, what I, what I identify in my article series as the American system of political economy, the thing that eight American presidents died while in office uh, fighting for, Again, not taught in history books, but all eight American presidents who died while in office were invoking the exact same system. So I'm trying to clarify, well, what is that system? How does it work? Now, to get back to your question on 
my world travels and, and you and I were both traveling uh, at around the same time. I find that interesting. Just to be quick. Yeah, I went to um, my, my wife and I were invited to speak at two uh, freedom events, one in Ireland uh, for a think local uh, event hosted by Sarah Habubi, um, who is a uh, an activist, a, a, a teacher um, and has a, developed a, a really powerful network of collaborators. And she uh, organized a, uh, a very interesting conference dealing with banking, agriculture and energy. Um, John Waters uh, spoke uh, alongside us, as did uh, Catherine Austin Fitz and uh, a variety of others. Uh, uh, Alex Craner, our good, our good buddy, flew in um, as well to uh, to speak. So that was that was great. We had about 250 uh, guests in the, in the live audience, and, and God knows how many more streaming. And just the the amount of of uh, hunger and thirst for not just the practical how do we preserve our local communities and and family from the oncoming economic collapse, but like that was very obviously very high. That's why people were there. But there was a, a, a real desire to understand the global context because I've, I've spoken at various events like this in the past. I've, I've watched them and, and there's a tendency for people to, when they're in a state of fear, to think purely myopically local, right? And say, and, and, and go for this, what I believe is a trap, which is I, I just can take care of my little, you know, preppers let's just say that preppers i i gotta just build my bunker have my my emergency food maybe have like a mini network and have a little you know local mini economy and that's how i'm gonna like survive with my family and okay that's fine we should we should think about those things i'm not saying don't think about having spare food and other things like that do that but at the expense of thinking about the top-down uh chemistry shaping our world that's where it becomes a problem. And I think a lot of people find themselves getting sucked into divide and conquer tactics because frankly, in my assessment, it's going to be a lot easier to, to cut people up and destroy them with the powers of the military and the state if they all uh, disengage into little microorganisms, um, which in this case in, in Ireland, that was not a problem. There was a, a very deep hunger to understand the, the difference in paradigm of banking, of political economy that is emerging in Eurasia um, how this could ch change the dynamics in which we are operating in the West, um, as you know, you could you could very quickly imagine uh, Russia, India, China, other countries which are currently setting up a, an alternative um, economic architecture, break away from some of these multinational institutions, which would completely change the rules of the game very quickly and give us opportunities that we don't normally have. So there was a lot of discussion like that in that Irish conference. Um, we had uh, a conference in Basel in uh, Switzerland, which was a full day event. It was two days, actually, with uh, hosted by Kern Punkt and our, our good friend uh, Kirsten Ewell. We, uh, Daniela Ganser was a, was a speaker, as, as was Dirk Polman, uh, an award-winning uh, journalist and uh, filmmaker. Daniel Ganser is the guy who did probably the best work on, op you know, have, do you guys know Opera uh, Operation Gladio or Daniela Ganser's work? Okay. He's, he's a cool guy. Anybody listening on online right now should Google Daniel Aganzer. Um, and he did the, the, some of the most pioneering work identifying um, the, the Nazi and Italian fascist uh, networks that were incorporated into MI6, the CIA, after World War II as part of the, uh, the war against communism, which also was behind the growth of a lot of um, 
terrorist organizations like the Weather Underground, like the Red Brigades, like the, uh, I mean, you, you had these things in, in the Netherlands, Germany, Italy, killing statesmen like Enrico Mattei, like Dag Hammarskjöld, uh, just running general terrorist operations against the, the population, um, including in Quebec too, throughout the 1960s, 70s. Um, this is all part of a strategy of general terror to keep, to get the population to Im run into the embrace of captured governments that were being taken under the control of those same fascists that they had formerly fought to stop. Um, that's been the last story of our, our 60, 70 past years. So Daniel Ganser blew the whistle off of that. He spoke another 250, 300 people showed up for the, the live, the live event in Switzerland. So again, a lot of allies, a lot of great, great minds. And the focus on that event was really bridging the broken uh, bridge or rebridging the divide between East and West, which is currently being set up as part of a broader uh, preparation for war against Russia and China that, that's that's been ongoing. And then the last phase of our journey um, was working for about two weeks on a project uh, with a, another series, uh, grouping of friends in Japan who are also very concerned that Japan is being used as a U.S. you know military um, col colony, um, which it it has been since since we bombed the hell out of Japan back in 1945. Um, it's not like the American military went disappeared and let Japan become a free country. It, it still has 50,000 U.S. troops occupying it, and it's still being used as part of a broader frontal uh, preparation for war against China, um, with largely puppet regimes in power. Um, so the population of Japan is obviously a, a bit confused, not happy to be caught in the crossfire of a nuclear war, but they don't really know what to do. So our, our friend who um, has an, had an idea of a sort of cultural project to create a series of videos, educating Westerners, including Japanese, on what is really going on was was the topic of that, that um, time. Um, and, you know, it was beautiful because it was April 1st that, that we, we found ourselves there in the, the the cherry blossom season. You know, it's two weeks of cherry blossoms uh, that inaugurates the, the the new year in a sense. Um, so there was a lot of life, a lot of vitality, and it was, it was a good time to be in Japan. A lot of raw fish. Well, thank you, Matt, for sharing that. And thank you for your opening um, information and knowledge because it's truly important that um, other countries, especially like for me, having just visited the Philippines, that my people understand that what's happening in um, in the U in U.S. will has been affecting the fate of their, our republic in the Philippines, and so it's crucial. And yeah, just like you, um, uh, yeah, I met families and members who the first thing they make comment is about you know, it's China, it's Russia, and never really seeing that, even if I mention about US, but first, I also want them, just like in health, that the healing starts from within. So if our country, the Philippines or US, usually stop looking outside, look what's going on in the vicinity, political, economic, because maybe that's the solution is coming there then of course you tie it as you said to the macro level so thank you and um i'm sure roy and john has a lot of questions brewing and comments so i'll pass it on to them sure hi Matt. it's uh, great getting you back again hey right so, so you mentioned actually uh about the first of april in japan and what i'm seeing is there's a lot of people kind of stating that that's when the the new year 
kind of started. I know it's kind of gone on a little tangent, but everything is kind of everything they do to us is they've changed everything. So I hear that there was originally 13 months and that the year began in April. Like, what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, that, that's something that, that as far as I know, I'm not an expert, but I, I think that we once had uh, the, the new year under the Julian calendar used to be celebrated uh, on April 1st. That was the for centuries and centuries. It was April 1st is the new year people would celebrate. And then you, you had um, due to certain well, I, I don't I haven't looked into it, but due to certain astronomical observations, things were falling a little bit out of whack. There, there wasn't an ability to sort of maintain the calendar system according in, a, in, in proper accord with the changing of the seasons. And uh, and certain remixes were made under, under what was called the Gregorian remix um, that that modified the new year and, and chose to make it uh, January 1st instead uh, of April 1st. And the whole idea of April Fools was actually it, it emerges with this confusion because a lot of people had been were refusing to change their their traditional time that they celebrated the new year, you know. And they're like, I'm not going to just stop doing what my my family has been doing for centuries. And they continue to celebrate the new year on April 1st. And the, the church, in order to try to like get them back in line, was calling them all like the April Fools or the yeah the Fools of April. Because uh, they're not they're not stepping back into conformity. Beyond that, I don't really know about other details. That's yeah. No, no, excellent. So, I mean, we're we're looking at all the confusion in the world, and I mean, I mean, the fact that you went to Ireland. I mean, I, I follow the politics there because being Irish, even though I'm living in Poland, and I can just see that they've destroyed the country, and like of. Because you're you watch the politics of everywhere, of of say five countries, is there any that haven't been bought and aren't controlled that you would think? <laughs> no, that I mean, we think <laughs> the, the, the transatlantic is is a pretty tough spot right now. Um, you obviously have places where they're. I mean, and Ireland is is it's tragic what's happened to Ireland, considering their their rebellious and and very noble uh, historical heritage. Um, you know, Ireland was was the was the only place that really stood up firmly against the Lisbon Treaty originally back in right, uh, yeah. 2007, which set the tone for the the European Parliamentary uh, dictatorship. Um, that was one I remember because we basically we voted no, and it was the wrong answer, so we had to vote again. And yeah. there was a few decent politicians that were out there, and I think it was something like a four thousand page document. And it was like nobody was reading it. They were just doing what they were told. And what I remember seeing that going, this is dangerous how this is actually being done. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was wild. And I think at the time, you know, Sinn Féin was not completely captured yet. There was still a lot of nationalists who, who didn't want to sacrifice their society, who had rallied around Sinn Féin, around Jerry Adams, who unfortunately has, you know, stepped down in 2018. And since then, you've had a bunch of Council on Foreign Relations, uh, CIA-connected uh, puppets who have been put in 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 that place of the the resistance party. Who are who, the point was made to me quite clearly while I was in Ireland that the, the the new the new approach of the resistance party of Sinn Fein against the establishment government policy is to basically just criticize the government policy for whatever it's doing by saying it's not doing enough of it, and demanding that that you do the same thing, but then like about double. And, and acting like now all of a sudden you're anti-establishment. It, it's uh, whether it's on COVID lockdowns, whether it's on uh, anti-Russian uh, policies, whatever, whatever it is, you just double double down on that. 
So th there's not uh, the, the sufficient um, representation, obviously, representing the interests of the people or nation in, in the Irish political uh, system. And I don't have really a, a sense of what to do about that at this moment, except to say, as, as I would for any country, it's up to the people to organize themselves in a more um, rational, moral, and competent way than they have formerly been, been doing because too many people have fallen into the habit of looking for heroes to come in and, and, and sweep in and save them. And of course, you know, uh, I, I believe in the, in the great, the great human being, um, idea of history, that history is shaped by great people looking within themselves for the courage and knowledge and competence to, um, intervene on a tragic process. That's why I, I always refer back to John F. Kennedy or Bobby Kennedy. So there are heroic personalities. I'm not saying that there aren't. But at the same time, some of those people, some of th those, those attributes can only happen because we find the hero inside of us too. And we break from our bad habits of thinking, of feeling, and we, we become bigger than we, we thought we could be and organize processes that we should have been doing, which is, again, like a lot of people have been wasting their time especially that that was one of the, the the one of the worst things of covid there's so many bad things about the the the, the so-called pandemic but i think one of the most damaging things is that it, it deflected people away from the sorts of things they they should have been doing to prepare themselves building town hall meetings um organizing properly for um really a, a real intervention into their governments based on grand strategy that's not that didn't really happen instead people went into survival mode you know um that that and that that has that has hurt us it, it hurt the resistance movement quite a bit um that being said you asked about any governments that are not captured yeah to varying degrees the transatlantic is like i said and probably the worst place that it's ever been you know finland just joined nato dear god you know like that's insane <laughs> nato is already it's an it's a i'm, I'm not gonna bash i'm not gonna bash nato everyone knows should know why why nato is evil if they don't i'd be got to do some work <laughs> um but uh, but I would say the places where I see the a, a, a much better job at de-weeding their deep state their deep state uh, gardens, so to call so to speak, is in Eurasia. Um, I see I see actual serious evidence of a fight um, from the leadership and, and uh, of, of Russia, of China, increasingly of India, as you pointed out. It's it's thus likely that India is going to be painted as a new a, a, you know a supervillain at some point soon. So we should prepare ourselves mentally for that type that the psyops that will emerge to convince us that India is bad. And we have to, you know, also go to war with India. The, the, I'm pretty sure the Australians are going to get heavy doses of that. And New Zealanders, um, they, they, they are after all the, uh, <laughs> the, the military, uh, bases of the United States to, to engage in any such war, just as the Japanese are in, in Japan's backyard or the Taiwanese. Um, South America, increasingly, you know, uh, I've seen uh, some some pretty good speeches from uh, President uh, Obrador, who's um, made some very powerful moves to take control of the national oil interests of, of Mexico, while at the same time um, building some serious strategic bridges with China, as well as other Ibero-American countries in the face of the, the oncoming economic collapse that they've moved in a certain good way. Brazil has done certain things that at first I was a little bit demoralized seeing uh, some of the creeps coming in with uh, uh, Lula da Silva. But at the same time, it seems like Lula was biding his time a little bit, dealing with the insane factors that he has to deal with in Brazil. And when the moment 
that is ripe has has come to pluck the the fruit he's taken it and has made a pretty good move towards uh you know breaking out of US dollar hegemony settling transactions and trade between Brazil and China in UN yuan as well as uh, firmly moving to try to create a, a basis for um a different economic uh, currency for Ibero-America to trade and invest amongst themselves instead of relying on the U.S. dollar. Um, a lot of African countries as well have increasingly found the courage. 40, 40 countries of Africa met with uh, Vladimir Putin or met with the, their Russian counterparts at the Africa-Russia summit, March uh, 19th, 20th, 21st. That was a very important summit. About 40 different trade and economic and military agreements were reached. Um, and this is the point where, when Putin was was made the uh, the International Criminal Court uh, most wanted uh, political figure to be arrested. And that was done for a variety of reasons. But one of the big reasons was to intimidate those African leaders that were going to be meeting up with their Russian counterparts to say, well, don't meet with them. You know, they're run by a by a villain who's uh, who's got a, a warrant out on his head. But despite that, 40 of the 55 African countries still met with him and signed massive agreements, including Sudan, which agreed to set up a, a, a military port with Russia on the port of, of Sudan on the Red Sea. And ju just to interject on that, because I heard recently, I don't know, I mean, it's very hard for me to actually validate it, that those of the 50 states in Africa, that the American have military bases in 49 of them. You know, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I saw, I saw some maps featuring U.S. military bases that, would corroborate what you just said um, which is kind of like well, what's going on here then? yeah 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 no it's bad i mean i'm, I'm about to do a, a podcast uh with an ethiopian radio station in, in a couple of hours and uh, we're going to talk about ethiopia a lot um which is sort of the um the most rebellious and independent minded uh african country that's never been colonized They've, there's been so many attempts to colonize ethiopia all of which have failed all the way up to, to Mussolini's Italy and beyond. Um, and they're making some of the strongest moves to working with Russia and China, especially um, in support of their ability to develop high-speed rail, uh, the Addis Ababa to Djibouti railway, which now can e easily transform to becoming a bridge uh, across or a tunnel. I'm not sure, I'm not sure which across the, you know, there's a, there's a small gap from Djibouti. If you go on the Horn of Africa to uh, Yemen into the Gulf States, that's about 28 uh, kilometers, um, not an impossible distance as far as a tunnel or a bridge that could uh, extend this rail that's been developed by uh, by the Chinese primarily across into Yemen as part of a broader reconstruction of both Yemen, but also of bringing in Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE and the other Gulf states ever more into the, uh, the Belt and Road paradigm, which is a paradigm not based on speculating on money or debt, but rather using the creation of productive credit for investments into real infrastructure, you know, building up the real economy, creating abundance. Is that why there's so much kind of conflict in the Horn of Africa and Yemen? Because I hear so much going on there. It's basically control of that kind of port. Yeah, yeah that's that's been the big thing. Like there was a back in 2007, 8 and 9 when Libya, when Gaddafi was was moving ahead really fast with building the great man-made water project funded by uh, the the Libyan dinar. I think it's dinar, I want to say. But also that was being done with primarily Mubarak's Egypt and uh, President Bashir of Sudan. So you had a trifecta of African countries 
um, all working on a, a breakaway economic strategy fund based on real development. And again, the the, the Qaddafi uh, program for for tapping into some of the the deep water uh, reservoirs under the Sahara and bringing that to the surface was it, it was known as the the eighth wonder of the world for good reason. Um, that was all happening at the same time that uh, you had had in um, in Ethiopia and Djibouti and Yemen, as well as Saudi Arabia, a discussion from the business community and certain certain politicians to do what I just said, the, the, the building up of this project that would have a sister city on both sides of the, the Red Sea, um, major advanced mega cities, I forgot the name all of a sudden, but that would then be the connecting between a, a, an actual high-speed rail network and... Um, and momentum was was moving ahead on this pretty fast until the Arab Spring, which was a, a, a Western-funded color revolution that overthrew first uh, Mubarak, right? We all know about the Muslim Brotherhood and how they were used as proxies to overthrow the government of Egypt. And then we saw the same uh, policy in, well, first in Tunisia, then then Egypt, then, uh, then Libya was destroyed by NATO, using, of course, Al-Qaeda operatives that we were told were freedom fighters. As, as they always do. And then they did the same thing to Syria, uh, which which didn't go as planned because of Russia's intervention primarily. Um, and then also Susan Rice, you know, the Rhodes Scholar under Obama, who's still there under Biden, was in charge of carving up Sudan into a, a North and a South component, one being Southern Christian, the other being Northern Muslim, as part of a new balkanization of Russia to break up that momentum, which happened. Um, President Bashir of, of Sudan was also given the uh, the honor of being on the IC, the International Criminal Court's, uh, you know, um, um, criminal list, where, where a warrant was put out on his head for his arrest to, to legitimize what Susan Rice had then later done, which was carve up the country into two. Um, so that that put the brakes on a lot of this momentum, but now it's it's coming back because of China having organized really brilliantly with also the Russians. Um, Things that we've seen miraculously emerge like this entente between Saudi Arabia and Iran, delegations of which are both meeting today again in Beijing. Or no, yesterday they met in Beijing to solidify this program of healing all of the wounds of the past decades and bringing a, a cooperative policy against two arch enemies right, of the, of the Middle East into harmony. And Saudi Arabia has, has jumped on board with this, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative because they've come to realize, I think, overall, that despite the fact that they were they were rewarded over many decades since World War II for being um, Wahhabiite sponsors of terrorism, money launderers of all sorts of things, as part of the oil economy that was that was used to smash the world into into conformity, they were ultimately flushable. At the end of the day, they're expendable. And and you just look at the the discussions at Davos at the at, at the in the city of London around you know the idea of a, of a post-carbon economy of a depopulated world order of people eating bugs and living off of uh, solar panels, which is just insane. Saudi Arabia kind of, I think, at a certain point realized, well, wait a minute, we don't seem to play much of a role in the equation of what they want to bring online post-economic collapse, which is a post-carbon a post world. Their whole economy is carbon, right? So they're, they're, I think they were ultimately persuaded that they should go with a new, a new set of rules. Um, and because of that, and that stability that can now finally emerge since Iran is, you know, a big supporter of, of the Yemeni Houthis. Um, 
there there's now a final chance for some real uh, large scale in infrastructure investments that could rehabilitate this program of building um, rail pipelines, other things between the, the the Gulf and the and the African continent, and as well the the Tigray People's Liberation Army. You know the the uh, these which in my in my assessment are completely USA CIA proxies to destabilize Ethiopia. That's part of the northern Ethiopian region is Tigray. Um, the, the head of the World Health Organization himself is the brother of a leading uh, Tigray terrorist um, who himself, had, Tedros, has uh, exhibited a lot of support over the years for the Tigray. Um, again, these are, these are people who have carried out serious, uh, serious terrorists using child, child soldiers, other things to run destabilization operations against Ethiopia. Um, and he's been rewarded for his 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 tasks by becoming, you know, the, Gates's little uh, peon at the at the who. Um, so but that's been resolved or not totally. But I mean, there is huge, huge steps that have resolved that conflict and created a, a basis of reconstruction and reconciliation there, despite the U.S. arsonists trying to light fires again and again. So, yeah, there's a lot of reason to hope uh, that that domain can actually see some real development soon. And like, because there's so many people, you know, they're feeling defeated because they see there's no accountability. And lately, Oxford, I think there's a lot of places they're bringing in the kind of 15 minute cities and everything. And it's like, what's their plan with that? It's like just to kind of, and I, I don't know which are travels, but where I'm living in Poland, half the city is basically under construction with maybe three people working there. And that seems to be the norm going along everywhere as well, it's, which in turn makes people frustrated, angry, which bring it home, which makes take, removes the creative ability and the ability to kind of fight because it sucks the energy out of you. Are you seeing that in a lot of the places you've been around? You? Oh, yeah, that, that's a universal constant, I think. Yeah, there's I mean, I, I obviously with the 15 minute cities, I think all you guys already did your homework. I think most audience members listening to your show have done their homework. They know what this is. Um, and it, I mean, at the end of the day, there's um, the, the oligarchy is many things, but creative is not one of them. And I, I think the the thing about this, this 15 minute city program is it's, it's not something that they cooked up over the last few months or years. It's something that's been on the books as a desirable component of a broader, um, technocratic world government regime that would be based upon a highly um, balkanized society, right? But when I say balkanized, I'm referring now to the period of the, the dismantling of Yugoslavia in the 90s, the, the carving up of, uh, of the former Soviet space into, into micro-ethno-nationalist regions that would th thereby be more easily manageable because they're divided and also more easily set, set at each other's throats because they're based upon their individual class prejudices and other things or, or not, you know, ethno prejudices that could then be uh, nurtured by handlers who manage the mythologies of, let's say the greater, uh, greater Albanians who have a sort of mythos of, um, of a much, much more expanded Albanian territory or, uh, we see it with the Finland, the greater Finland ideologues that that have a, a, a romanticized view of that, that Finland should actually be like four times greater in size than it currently is today based on certain myths of deep Nordic history. 
which was capitalized upon by the Nazi collaborators of fin in Finland back like like Mannerheim, um, who was a leading fin Finnish uh, general and a collaborator with the Nazis back in the 1930s and 40s. There was a whole I this these are all things that that have been cult that the the oligarchy likes to cultivate because they know that if you get a bunch of you know countries who are neighboring each other who all have um um ideological cultural um commitments to expand their territory over their neighbors borders that's a perfect recipe for creating perpetual war and conflict and better to manage the chaos if, you know that way if people are are too busy fighting each other than realizing that they have the common enemy starting fires on both sides so the 15 minute cities is part of that idea of just getting people to be more in a controlled environment, you know, it, it fits in with the, the central bank digital currency idea as well of giving us all like limited credits for universal basic income. Cause obviously there's not going to be jobs for everybody, but you don't want to say, well, we're heartless. We're going to let a bunch of people just die. No, you don't say it that way, but you will say you, you want that outcome if you're an oligarch. So you'll say, well, we'll just give everybody equal amounts of credits independent of whether they're working or not, as long as their behavior is matching up to certain, protocols that we demand, you know, be followed. And, um, and part of that will probably involve the privilege of visiting family that's more than 15 minutes away in your rental car that, you know, you might be able to access with your credits, if you're if you're doing the right things or recycling, whatever, you know, not using as much of a carbon footprint as you're expected to. All that to say, uh, this this goes back to the 1950s, 60s, uh, as far as part of the formula. But as I said, they're not creative. They're still using the same script they put online generations ago that they, they thought they were going to get with no challenge back in 1991, 92, when the Soviet Union melted down. And despite the fact that over the last, especially decade, the world has shifted uh, to, to demonstrate a real resistance of nations representing, I would say, like over 75% of the world population that don't want to go along with this, they're still doubling down on that same 1950s um, uh, program formula. And so I don't think it can, it can work in that context. I think the greatest threat we have is not so much the 15-minute cities as much as it is the danger of nuclear war, which is probably the only thing I could see right now that could fully upset uh, a victory, a, a longer-term victory on the part of... Um, humanity against this oligarchy is a nuclear war being launched that that could derail things but i don't think that they necessarily have the ability to to achieve the, that totalitarian fascist formula that they've so desired for so long i don't think that they can do that and just before i pass it to john there because it's something that i saw because i've heard of people saying they don't believe that they have the nuclear bombs i know that because i've actually wrote about it myself that there was like five thousand tests and everything but when I saw pictures, I don't know, was it uh, Nagasaki uh, or Hiroshima? But basically, the Americans had went in and bombed it, that there was nothing there anyway. And I saw pictures of that. And there's no kind of pictures of uh, around that. So I'm not sure. I mean, that's that's just something. Was it a fair tactic that's done to just put people into the fair mode again? Oh, well, you know, I... I, I... I think that there definitely were crazy firebombs that did completely yeah. decimate whole cities, no doubt. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm of the, the view that there that nuclear bombs uh, do exist. Um, but, you know, at the same time, when I look at the type of 
when I look at the type of hypersonic technology that's been brought online, I mean, Vladimir Putin first unveiled a new generation of um, defensive weaponry um, to respond to the threat of a um, provoked nuclear attack by NATO. And he did this first in 2000, and I believe it was 18. And he basically was, it was a big shock and surprise to many Western geopoliticians who thought that they still had the technological lead on Russia because of what they did to Russia in the 1990s. You know, the U.S., the CIA pretty much had an office um, inside of Russia's military high command in the 1990s under Yeltsin. Um, and they they really, really tore down Russia's um, military. And so there was still that sense of hubristic victory. Um, and so when, when Putin unveiled this new generation of hypersonic missiles, drones that could travel like around the world twice, um, and I'm talking hypersonics that go like 15 to 20 times faster than the speed of sound, like crazy things. Uh, it really broke the, the formula of mutual assured destruction. And the, the whole mutual assured destruction formula was always based on the, the idea of Bertrand Russell and, you know, the, the, the planners at Pugwash back in 1958 that both sides, because a nuclear war could not necessarily be guaranteed to be won as an old, an old school conventional war, they were like, well, we have to just always maintain parity of both sides of the Iron Curtain, and we'll have this mutual balance of terror. Now, that's a perfect formula for an oligarchy to keep all sides in a state of absolute confrontation and paranoia, where you could just look at the damage that was done to, to both sides of the world, right, during the Cold War. is is wild. Um, and if one side gets a technological edge, we have to ensure that the other side gets a technological edge, right, and just keep that... that now, that's not a real good secure policy either. There were moments where, in hindsight, we can look back and we could see that there were like at least four or five different occasions, at least, where commands to launch nuclear nuclear weapons based on a misreading of uh, a military exercise was given to nuclear submarine commanders. And the submarine commanders, like in the case of the Soviet hero, forgot his name all of a sudden, uh, he refused to follow his orders. But had he followed his orders and he had the nuclear codes, he could have launched you know, a full-blown nuclear assault on America, which would have then involved everybody shooting everything they had, which would have been hugely, that, that could have set humanity back thousands of years. Um, so today that, that formula was broken by the Russians who basically said, look, as much as you think you can launch a first, a first strike attack on us, on Moscow and all of the major cities and think that you're going to come out victorious, these technologies prove that no matter what you do to us, we can do 10 times more to you in response that will evade all of your, your defensive mechanisms. So give up on that agenda that was, you know, begun under the expansion of NATO in the 1990s. Just give up. Like, and he gave many alternatives that, that were, would be much more palatable for humanity, which we've chosen. Donald Trump was the only one who had political power who tried to work with the Russians on some of these ententes that didn't last too long. Um, and they've shared and they've worked with the Chinese as well. Uh, at, so the Chinese have the same hypersonic response technology. So I don't think that a nuclear war would necessarily be. Um, some people say it would be the elimination of all life, human and other on Earth forever. I don't think that it's that apocalyptic, but it would be bad, I believe. And it would be, be devastatingly bad. I, I think we could probably Russia and China have demonstrated a capacity to eliminate a lot of the missiles that would attack them, but not all of them. And, um, you know, the, it, it, again, it would set us back hundreds, if not thousands of years. I, I wouldn't want to entertain that um, if it could be avoided. 
Okay. But yeah, I do. I do believe that there's nuclear power, nuclear bomb technology. I do, I do <laughs> okay. That. Listen, thoroughly enjoyed listening to you, Matt. I have to pass you on to John. Thank you. Oh, okay. Eric. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Hey, man. Um, so I've been trying to enable my VPN, so I have to be very careful. The CRTC might cancel me. Uh, so no, I'm not. I'm not going to be talking about Canadian politics or Nazis or stuff like that, which I wanted to. But I do. I do want to touch up on a couple of things. You said something mm -hmm. about uh, the Balkans. Now I'm from Greek descent. Mm -hmm. um, I follow Greek politics very closely, more closely actually than Canadian and American politics. So I know exactly what you're talking about. When Yugoslavia fell and it got broken apart. Um, and I know how intrusive the American CIA is with foreign governments because there was one Greek politician uh, who was trying to remove himself from, uh, re remove not himself, but the country of Greece from the European Union. And there were multiple attacks, um, assassination attempts on his life. He's never, he never wants to set foot in politics again. His predecessor gave the name Macedonia to what we know as Northern Macedonia now. Um, Albania, we've seen in Greece multiple different maps where Albania's borders go right down towards the uh, Corinthian Gulf. The Macedonian borders brushing up against uh, uh, Athens. Turkish borders brush uh, engulfing Athens uh, and now our current government the current government in in Greece has proposed that half the Aegean belongs to Turkey so there's uh, okay. and they're actually going to be in, in uh, an election uh, this month in Greece yeah. so it's going to be interesting uh, a lot of people are thinking that the current government's going to retain power because uh, Greeks have just lost hope, which is wrong. They shouldn't lose hope. But uh, anyways, so I know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to the Balkans. It's it's complete. It's a complete mess down there. Mm. It's an absolute mess. My, uh, my, my first question is about BRICS for you. Mm. Now that BRICS is starting to gain... Uh, a foothold in the world stage, and they're like you said before. They're 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 creating. They they created peace in the Middle East. Pretty much, they created peace in the Middle East. Where do you see the American dollar in comparison to that? Now that uh, now that the uh, yuan is going to be traded, yeah. going to be used to trade for oil. Yeah, the the, the U.S. dollar is going to collapse. Uh I'm, I'm quite persuaded that the U.S. dollar is uh, is not long for this world in that sense. Um, and that's not necessarily a good thing, um, since a lot of lives are going to be are going to suffer, are going to be put in jeopardy with the collapse of that dollar, especially in the part of the world where we happen to live, most of us. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm so I don't say that with with happiness, but there is a certain lawfulness to the U.S. dollar collapsing, because at the end of the day, you can only um, um, engage in economic terrorism and tyranny for so long without paying the repercussions. Um, and I think that that's a sign that the universe 
is a just and lawful universe that it won't tolerate evil and, and immorality indefinitely. And I, I do hope that the U.S. has the moral capacity to organize um, a proper change in policy before that, or at least maybe maybe they need to have a bit of an, a, a kick in the ass, the way the Americans who became decadent in the 1920s under the roaring 20s of easy money. Um, you know, there, there, were, there were a good 30 years between the assassination of McKinley in 1901 and the, the blowout of the economic system in 1929. That was, that was 30 years of relative consistent decay in the minds, the morals, the physical economy of America, despite the small attempt by Warren Harding to revive the Lincoln Republican tradition in 1921, 22, and then he dies in 23 by oyster poisoning. Um, but so despite his small little attempt, um, there was still a, a general decline in the minds and morals of the people. So did they did they need to have a bit of a reality slapdown? I, I personally, unfortunately, think they kind of did to be shaken out of their, their dream state, their drunken sort of fervor. Um, did it have to be the way it was? I don't think anything had to be the way it was, but that four year of, of pain of Great Depression created a, a responsiveness in the people who began to appreciate appreciate for the first time what, what real value was. You know, they, they were confused before that. When times were stable, there, there was an apparent abundance, but it was an illusion. And then afterwards, um, there was an ability for the, the, the McKinley-Warren-Harding networks to rally. In, in this case, it was around Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and the Patriots were able to derail some of the world government programs that were being pushed to, to create a fascist economic solution a la Mussolini or Hitler in, in America in 1932-33. So um, that, that Roosevelt solution involved breaking up the banks, sending hundreds of leading bankers around J.P. Morgan to prison, um, sabotaging the, the London World Government Conference in 1933 in June, uh, which was attempt that was, again, you know, for people who, I, I wrote a book on this, but there was a, a whole program to create a Bank of International Settlements, Bank of England-led world government to solve the global, uh, you know, uh, economic uh, crisis. So that needed the U.S. to be a part of that um, that program. And Franklin Roosevelt sabotaged it by pulling the U.S. delegation out of all of the the conference and torpedoed it. So that bought the world some time to, to rebuild, to get some infrastructure back back online, to start, you know, bringing. Some of these criminal criminals under a leash again, who had run roughshod over America under Coolidge, under uh, President Hoover before that. Um, so today, in, in today's Western decadent population, I mean, the unfortunate thing I have to, I, I'm quite sure of, is that the people today are are very, we're suffering a multi generational delusion, um, a corruption of values. The minds and morals have, have probably gotten a lot worse than they were even in the in the decadence of the 20s. So that I think does require that that we get our ass kicked by a bit of reality. The repercussions of our mistakes have to sort of bite a little bit. But I think that there is um, a need with that to introduce some viable solutions. And I'm I'm here referring to the the only thing viable in America that I see is the MAGA the MAGA component of the Republican Party. Um, who have exhibited, in my mind, any uh, moral fitness to survive. There's no, nothing cultural beyond uh, that's outside of that faction of the American population um, or political class that, that has the ability to, to renew America back towards its proper traditions. 
which is again the, the reason why I'm, I'm putting out my 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 series of articles right now to clarify well what is this american constitutional banking tradition that they don't teach about in school anymore um as far as the BRICS are concerned um well the, you know the, the president of kenya um delivered a, a, a sharp speech about a week and a half ago where he basically warned all of the the investors in uh, in kenya uh, you got a, about two weeks to, to get your money out of U.S. dollars. And if you're still stuck in U.S. dollars, I'm, I'm sorry, you're surely going to take some losses. Uh, he's not stupid. I mean, there's, there's been a, a, a very long-term, very, very sophisticated back-channel discussion in preparation for him. And we're seeing it now in preparation for a de-dollarization. You know, India is, is settling their trade with, with the Chinese as well as with the Russians and local currencies. The ASEAN countries as well have moved, moved forward very quickly at settling their trade in, in local ASEAN nations' currencies, um, primarily with the yuan, of course, because that, that is the strongest, stablest currency of the world. Um, Latin American CELAC countries, Caribbean Latin American nations as well have been moving in that direction. So... Yeah, I think that the BRICS originally might have, and I hear people who tell me, oh, Matt, you're a fool because don't you know the BRICS is a Goldman Sachs project from 2001? It's like, yeah, of course, of course it was. Uh, yes, yes, it, the brick was that. Um, and it was originally designed to be a giant speculative biodiesel boondoggle run by Santander with a trap of, of, of getting the developing world into a, into a cage that would be tied to a speculative commodity that would be able to be uh, burst by those controlling the bio biofuel um, speculative markets. Again, Santander has a lot of assets in Brazil. Brazil was the weak, the weak link that was designed to blow it all out. But, and that's why I, back in 2007, 2008, 2009, um, I was attacking the, the brick because that's what it was. There was no evidence that it was anything but that. And then starting around 2011, 2012, when, when South Africa was brought in and it became the BRICS with an S, um, something changed. The policy, the, the, the entire way of thinking about value strategy coming out of these nations exhibited a qualitative change. And what happened is they went off the reservation. You know, they, they played a certain game patiently. And when they were able to um, develop a capacity, certain muscles and, and capacities were built up. They began to all of a sudden move outside of the formula that that was expected that they follow. So now what we're seeing is uh, is still a fight. There are still Western deep state interests that have way too much influence inside of things like the BRICS Development Bank, which was brought online in 2014. It hasn't really done very much. Way too much green Green New Deal type of infrastructure, which is which is nasty. Uh, too much of that, but it's changing. Uh, the A the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank is another powerful instrument, but it hasn't been used the way it could be. And I think some of these things might only be um, able to fulfill their potential as issuers of real international productive credit in a, in a positive way if the U.S. dollar is not sort of holding everybody's necks underwater. So that's a, that's a component of it too. But looking at the general intention and, and new trajectory, I'm seeing that there is um, – a resistance towards depopulation, a desire to create abundance, which is very different from the West. Um, these are all these are all indicators that the type of digital currencies you see being discussed in Asia versus the types of digital currencies you see being discussed by Davos creeps is two different universes. They're they're different paradigms. And a digital currency, you know, I, I have this discussion ongoing with Whitney Webb. Um, she's convinced that anybody who supports a digital currency is intrinsically evil part of the, the Great Reset agenda. I'm of the view that a, di a, digital re a digital currency 
may or may not be bad. It's like a, I see it more of as a neutral thing that's shaped its goodness or evilness is shaped by the intentions and ideas of, of who animates it to use it for what purpose and design. And what's your idea of humanity? Is it, is humanity just a beast to be controlled by zookeepers or machines to be programmed by programmers? Or do you see humanity as something more than beast or machine or some combo of the two, which I believe the Eurasian leadership with their Confucian Christian, deeper Muslim traditions is, um, has a sensibility of the human being as a creative, um, sacred thing. Uh, I, I shouldn't say thing. That's such a de denigrating thing. <laughs> uh, a species that is actually a good species that's creative. That's the source of value. So I'm seeing a lot of that. So, well, yeah. even the even the Christian view is actually more in line with the with that view. <laughs> it's just the the leaders that we have currently in in Catholicism and in orthodoxy is skewed. At that's the, that, that, that's the best way that I could that I could uh, explain it. Very diplomatic way. For <laughs> <to explain it. laughs> yeah. um, I have a friend who is in the Canadian Armed who was in the Canadian Armed Forces, and uh, he told me uh, Canada is one of the most uh, underrated militaries in the world and i agree with him with what uh with some of the conversations that i've had and it's hard for me to imagine that russia after the collapse would have gotten rid of all their nuclear armament i mean here's this here's this one two bullies two bullies on the playground america and russia Okay, back in the 60s and 70s. You had these two bullies on the playground. Both are threatening to kill each other. And all of a sudden in the 90s, Russia, the, the Russian bully goes away. We're, we're to believe that the Russian bully goes away. And they're, and they're going to say, yeah, we're going to give up all of our defenses. It's, it's, it's like logically thinking, like I'm not good. If I'm, good, if I'm threatening somebody's house, I'm expecting to a, a repercussion. And if I move away from that environment, I'm going to leave. I'm going to get rid of all my weapons too. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's so hard to, to, to believe that Russia who was potentially more ahead in mass destruction than what America was. America had uh, the dollar. They had nuclear warhead. They had nuclear war, uh, uh, warheads. I'm not going to say that they didn't. And they had the intel, and Russia had the exact same with the KGB, with mm -hmm. their nuclear, uh, nuclear and thermal nu nuclear uh, programs. For them to get rid of it, I, it's it's hard for me to, it's yeah. hard for me to believe. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, I, I find it very liberating to um, to review my reality and my history from the standpoint of rejecting the popular um, narrative that we're, we're told in school, you know, if we want to be respectable historians or journalists or, or just whatever, we're told that we have to abide by certain assumptions, which is number one, that history is shaped by nation states. And that alone is all that we have to think about is nation states that want uh, what, what do nation states want? They want more for themselves, they want uh, they they their their natural selfishness will naturally encroach upon their neighbors 
territories, which will naturally induce wars, which is a natural state of affairs in a Hobbesian world of each against all. And the only way to break out of that natural cycle of constant war is for some Leviathan to be created, a la Hobbes, to impose order from the top. You know, Immanuel Kant has his own variety of a world government imposing some Kantian, you know, categorical imperative of good behavior onto the chaotic, bubbling world of, of selfish chaos that is all humans are. Because a nation state is just the, the expression of the sum total of the selfish impulses of each selfish beast, right? In this Darwinian world of, of diminishing returns. And it's just this terrible formula that, that completely ignores any law, like dignified metaphysical reality of God, soul, justice, freedom, like all of these beautiful good things that give rise to the best of humanity. It's not, it, it doesn't fit with this popular imperial pattern, which we're expected to adapt in our minds. Now, you know, the reality is there's oligarchical systems that, that have been maintaining continuous uh, tradition and modes of, of causal, you know, they're, they're sitting in a causal nexus in world history above nation states going back thousands of years. I mean, read Plato's dialogues, like look at the, look at the, 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 the stories of the geopolitics of, of ancient Athens. And the, it wasn't just Athens fighting Persia or Athens fighting, uh, like what was the Delian League all about in the first place, right? The Delian League was originally set up in, in a noble way to, to unify the interests of all the different uh, Greek people around defending themselves and their heritage against the Persian hordes. And uh, at a certain point, why did it collapse? Well, it collapsed for a variety of reasons. It wasn't just that Athens went all renegade and just started stabbing its neighbors in the back though there was a little bit of that going on. Uh, but you you had the infusion of sophists, right? The cult of Delphi. You had these various like um, intelligence operations that were masquerading as these oracles and these cults that would then gather intelligence because all of the generals and kings from every part of the world were going to these, the, 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 these you know, the, these Apollonian uh, oracles saying, well, what do I do? Here's Here's my money. Tell me what the gods tell me. Should I go to war? Or should I make peace? And, you know, all sides, enemies are coming to the same source, asking for what they should do. Now, the source is, is part of a network of nodes stretching all the way through the Babylonian world, all the way across, you know, uh, Athens with different different branches. And they're sharing information and they're able to then be in a very, very strategic position to coordinate strategic wars and, and tell people, well, no, you should make an alliance with Sparta against uh, blah, blah, blah. You should do that whatever. And they're able to then divide and conquer in a very easy way while making a, a huge profit too. Cause I mean, that doped up prince or that doped up priestess is, uh, she, I mean, you know, she's, she's, she's blubbering out random, random mutterings. Cause she's, she's, she's on drugs. And, uh, <laughs> and these priests are able to just interpret whatever, uh, to their victim, uh, general that they want to subvert. Um, or use for their their own puppet puppet making thing. So all that to say, um, you you have this oligarchy which has used very similar techniques over the course of, and also I I, I should also add to the sophists, right? The infusion of sophists that then brainwashed the young aristocrats, the elites, uh, if, and anybody could get training from a sophist to learn the arts of persuasion and rhetoric with no concern about truth um, for a price. And that was also corrupting the 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 intelligentsia of of Athens in a bad way, resulting in Athens going into never ending wars and things like that. That that subvert like what happened to America in many ways after World War II. The America brought in a bunch of 
you know, sophists into their educational system and they started stabbing in the back their former allies that they they work like brothers with, you know, we're coming on to Elba Day where American and Russian soldiers were met at the Elba River after defeating as a sign of the defeat of Hitler. Um, all of a sudden, the common sacrifices that you had made, I see that kind of like the, the Athens and the Spartans fighting together. And then all of a sudden, within like a, a, a blink of the eye, all of a sudden you're 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 at each other's throats and you're sabotaging um, each other. Well, I mean, the well, U.S. is, I think, the major protag protagonist in a lot of that. Uh, the well, CIA to, be, to, to be honest, I mean, uh, uh, Athens and Sparta were always at war with each other. I mean, that was, yeah. that's, that was a common yeah, thing, moments. <laughs> especially with especially when you involve the Spartans. I mean, they used they used war as sport. So, I mean, it's uh, and yeah, the, yeah, nail, yeah, yeah. the nail in the coffin of the Delian League was the uh, the Peloponnesian War. Uh, so it's 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 that was the nail in the coffin. Athens just ran out of money. Well, yeah, but but also you, you I mean, you, you had it's it's very similar of what's happening in America right now. If you go yeah. if you go further back, it's you can see the similarities. I see the Peloponnesian War kind of like I see the Vietnam War as just like draining the coffers, um, and the whole military industrial complex grew like hyperbolically over the course of the Vietnam War. Well, first the Korean War and then the Vietnam War, which were two insane, unnecessary wars, um, destroying countries that only wanted to be allies and friends with America. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 I mean, Vietnam has the, for their constitution, they, 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 they modeled their, the Vietnamese constitution of 1946 word for word on the American declaration of independence. And the idea was, okay, if Franklin Roosevelt's policies continue, then we have a world of hope and mutual development and win-win cooperation and, and Roosevelt and, and his allies really did believe that and wanted that to be so, but Roosevelt died, you know, we're coming up to the anniversary of his, of what I, I would say is his murder. Um, in, in, on April 12th and the deep state immediately took over all of his enemies who he had, he had been at war with for 12 years immediately took over within before his body was cold and turned America into a perversion of itself. And I, I sort of see Pericles in a, in a similar sort of way as, as somebody who emptied the coffers, you know, I mean, there's free money for a lot of the people of, of, of Greece. They were given a lot of, a lot of, uh, incentives to just be complacent and docile and happy as Greece went into this, this what's called the golden, the golden age. But I mean, the golden age was an age shaped by wars and looting and building a giant friggin' wall that, that made the, 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 the plagues that much worse that ultimately killed Pericles as, as no small irony there. <laughs> um, and I sort of see that, that shift in morals as, as exactly what happened to America after world war, world war two. And we're paying sort of the, the piper for it now. Um, but all that to say, uh, Russia in the in the eighties, literally, I I think that um, asymmetrical warfare and fifth columnists aren't just for America. They, you know, you had your a fair share of these things operating embedded within Russia as well. Um, I think Gorbachev was, I mean, he was a, he was somebody who turns out to be a close ally with Maury Strong and co-writes the the Earth Charter with Stephen Rockefeller, Maury Strong, and uh, uh, Jim Jim O'Neill. Um, Jim, Jim McNeil, sorry, Maury Strong's assistant in 1994. Uh, but, but who the hell is Gorbachev? Like, I mean, this, this, this guy opens the floodgates for all of Soros's operations to have full reign in the former Soviet space, especially in Russia. I mean, Soros is having a field day, no resistance at all in Hungary. Um, so I, I, I do think that there is collusion both from the Russian side um, of traitors, 
but it's not to say that it's the that Russia was always in on it. Like if you were to ask Brezhnev if he would have done done what Gorbachev did, I, I would say Brezhnev would have said no, no bloody way. We're, we're not going to do that. But Brezhnev was dead. Um, do I think Brezhnev is a good guy? No, I'm, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying <laughs> he wasn't into sacrificing his society. Um, same thing for like um, Stalin, you know, who you're not supposed Stalin's supposed to be worse than Hitler that we're told. But I mean, frankly, when I look at the, the facts on the ground, um, it, the reason why Hitler failed to succeed in that ambition of creating a one world government under a banker's dictatorship was because of the US, uh, China and Russia primarily putting the, the biggest, I mean, Russia put the biggest sacrifice of everybody, 25 million, uh, died. China lost 10 million of their people in the fight against the Japanese fascists. And, you know, you look at the Trotskyists in my, in my assessment, the, the, the core nexus of the, um, of the deep state of Russia has always been since the Bolshevik time and the overthrow of the Romanovs has been the Trotskyist dynamic within the Bolshevik movement. And Trotsky was sort of always the uh, the golden boy um, who his, you know, it's a, it's a messy thing. History is sometimes messy. And, and even though the Bolshevik uh, revolution was, in my assessment, generally a color revolution with Wall Street and London um, money, it was a bit of a chaotic thing, too. Like they had their ideal of what they wanted, which was Trotsky to be the dictator, kind of like a, a proto Pinochet who would then liberalize the economy under what, what was known as the, the new economic plan or the new economic, the new economy policy of 1922, which was essentially what Russia was in the, in the nineties. So Russia, 1993 with perestroika was Russia, Russia, 1923. It, it's basically, you know, no government intervention, no protectionism, just open up to free markets. And in that context, you have like in the 90s, it was George Soros as as the big, you know, money bags coming in, buying up Russian industry and creating a local oligarchy under beholden to the IMF or, or the city of London or Wall Street. In the 20s, it was Armand Hammer. Armand Hammer was, you know, the George Soros of the 20s of, you know, who came in, bought up Russian industry, all the former state state enterprises. Trotsky was the guy who did the most to make it happen. Trotsky also brought in dialectic materialism as a new governing uh, philosophy that was supposed to manage economic, uh, sorry, scientific and, and industrial policy, which is a poison pill because, I mean, the whole idea of dialectic materialism is this um, deep-seated belief that quantity governs quality. That's one of the core assumptions of dialectic materialism. That is bullshit. Quality the fact is that all discoveries that are worthwhile have always been made by those who recognize the fact that quality governs quantity. There is quantity, quantity and quantization in space-time, as Plato demonstrates in the Timaeus. I mean, it's a whole thing is the, the investigation of how quantization exists within ones and many, right? So everything is, exists as a one, one microphone, but there's many parts that could feasibly be broken down infinitely. But within the, within the one, and between the one and the infinite, there is a quantized many. Right. And, and the, the Philebus dialogue is a great place where he ex it, it, it explores that in, in terms of harmonics. You have one string with one harmony, but there's like very specific intervals around which the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do occur at specific consonants. And he does the same thing with the vowels, you know, the a, i, o, u. It's like one continuum. But in the con you could find these these singularities that we can label with a we can punctuate with a symbol called a vowel that helps the flow of language occur. 
So the it, it but but what it, is it the quantity of the frequency that determines the the quality of the language? No, it's the quality of the sound and the quality of ideas that then shape how we interpret or how our minds zero in on the, the parts, right? And and see their their relationships. So Trotsky's role, well, he was the the czar of science and industry for about four years in the twenties, was to impose that quantitative analysis, um, which you know this this was at the heart of the the fraud of systems analysis and cybernetics theory that that emerged during world war ii and when trotsky was kicked out of russia why was he why was he kicked out of russia he's kicked out of russia because he organized a vast network with it and i he was not smart enough to do this himself but you know he had um handlers um from britain from from the united states that managed to build up a, a vast intricate network in the bureaucracy, the military, the academia of Russia um, that had an agenda. It was very compartmentalized. So not, not many people knew who were part of the cells of Trotskyists knew what the whole was doing. And the program that Trotsky was leading was to create an alliance with the Japanese fascists, the German Nazis, um, and ultimately carve up Russia early on and, and, and give the different, uh, Soviet, you know, areas, um, massive autonomy, which is what the original Lenin Trotsky designed for the, the, the constitution of 1921 was all about was you give Ukraine maximum amount of rights to secede. You give all of these local regions, you know, massive amounts of, of independence. Putin came out attacking this for a reason. Um, and, and work with the Nazis so that the Soviet union under Trotsky was going to be a pro Nazi pro fascist, um, part of the world island and uh, Trotsky got kicked out the nationalists had ended up organizing around Trotsky's enemy Stalin and 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 he got banned and there was a a war that was waged for about a more than a decade against these these Trotskyist networks that killed one of Stalin's key allies that that had whole there was a whole fight that went on and and unfortunately it was these same assets that became like in the case of the United States one of key Trotsky's key um assistance was a guy named James Burnham. James Burnham was the key guy who, who was the assistant of Trotsky, who became six months before Trotsky is, is killed in Mexico. Right. Um, Burnham denounces Trotsky and says, um, comrade Trotsky, um, I've now read Bertrand Russell and I am a new disciple of Russell's, uh, Principia Mathematica, which is my, which is, which is replacing dialectic materialism goodbye dear trotsky good luck and then you know trotsky's killed probably not stalin's people that's probably actually this the the anglo anglo-american intelligence i i think that kills trotsky because he knows too much and then burnham does what does burnham do burnham becomes the founder of a new sect in america called the neoconservatives so the entire neoconservatives are 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 set up by these former trotskyists like irving crystal james burnham um uh Oh man, it's a big list. I'm, I'm forgetting some of the names that set up Rand Corporation, right? That run Rand that shapes the entire Cold War, um, and they they build up this thing that that people like John F. Kennedy is trying to fight against as as this this slime mold inside of America. They do the same thing in Russia after the the second Stalin dies in 1954, two weeks before he's supposed to meet with Eisenhower to resolve the Cold War. Two weeks before that meeting happens, Stalin dies. I'm not going to say why Stalin dies. I don't know the details, but it's it's a weird coincidence. The second he dies, the Trotskyists that were formerly um, put in gulags by Stalin 
because there was there there were several major purges of these assholes. They're they're rehabilitated under uh, Khrushchev. So you have this massive Trotsky re rehabilitation, a de-Stalinization program where where Khrushchev is deployed to psychologically dismantle or sever the idea of the people that anything that happened under Stalin was good and, and crush that, um, while at the same time rehabilitating cybernetics, because cybernetics was illegalized under Stalin as a, a bourgeoisie uh, utilitarian science. It's a, it's a science of control, basically. It's the science of command, where you, you could basically take anything, you, you break it up into compartmentalized parts as a bureaucracy, whether it's in NATO, the OECD, whether it's in uh, a union, and so that the parts don't know what, like one hand doesn't know what the, the other hand is doing, and only a small executive understands the whole. And that's that's the application of cybernetics theory. So that, that's now brought in. Khrushchev gives a speech saying that this is the new key to, to managing the, the, the Soviet economy in 1960. Um, and, and all of these fifth columnists that had formerly been purged, Armin Hammer was was banned from Russia the second Trotsky was kicked out. Armin Hammer was, was, was kicked out too. Um, they all of a sudden come back into play. Uh, but through these think tanks and through things like the EASA, the, the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, is brought in. And so they're working slowly to subvert Russia from within. You got the same thing under Rand Corps, working to, and the Rhodes Scholarship Networks, like the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, subverting America from within. And they're all working together <laughs> to, to just dismantle the, the institution of the nation state itself um, that made both Russia and America viable and good. Um, and so when the time comes in 1989, 1991, the, these, these traitors have taken control of the, uh, of the Russian economy under Gorbachev. Like I said, Soros is brought in. China is under the control of Zhao Ziyang, a, a Soros operative who is now in charge of the Chinese Communist Party. That's bad. Um, and the difference between China and Russia at this time is because wh why did China survive the 1980s? instead of going the way that Russia went. Well, it's because they kicked out Zhao Ziyang, you know? They had a color revolution attempt in 1989 under the Maidan of, of, of uh, Beijing. It was, it was called Tiananmen Square. And, uh, and it wasn't what we were told. It was not a, a Chinese government massacre of their people. It was actually a, a CIA Soros-fueled attempt to bring in Zhao Ziyang as the Trotskyist dictator of, of China, who was gonna he promised to liberalize the Chinese economy, get rid of national controls, bring in Western, you know, controlling hands of the IMF. That was his promise and, and create democracy everywhere. Total fraud. And they, they, they basically uh, arrested him where he rotted and died. His, his allies were either arrested or if they, they did avoid arrest, it was through Operation Yellowbird through the Hong Kong triads that worked with the CIA and MI6 to bring in a lot of these provocateurs out of China to, and, and into Florida, New York, Vancouver, where they remained for the last 35 years as a foreign operation against the Chinese government, running things like Epoch Times, um, Falun Gong, all of these like other CIA front groups. So it's, it's a whole thing, but I, but there's this other, that's why, again, it's, it's, it's a value for me to, to not look at the world shaped by nation states, but as, but by oligarchical asymmetrical operations, and intelligence agencies that use synthetic cults, like the cult of Delphi or Apollo at Delphi, that just changed its form, but used the same techniques all the way up through the, the, the Scottish Rite Freemasonry networks that run the FBI. To, it's so valuable. It's so useful to just look at things that way. I rambled a lot. I'm sorry. 
it's all good. Um, I could go on with more with you when it comes to like 15 minute cities, carbon, uh, carbon footprint and all this nonsense. Uh, but I'm going to pass you on to Grace. Thank you so much, Matt. Hey man, no, no problem. Thank you, John. Matt, I just want to bring three things from a viewer uh, that he, he wanted you to please share your, what you know. So I said, ask Matthew, um, what he thinks about uh, JFK Jr. deciding to run for president. And then ask him about CBDC, which you mentioned a little bit already. And also ask you about Trump's America's first. And then you can end it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, good good for Bobby Kennedy Jr. I mean, yeah, uh, leadership. Uh, that's for sure. I think, you know, Bobby Kennedy is really, I support that. Um, I, I was a little disappointed on some of his foreign policy stances because I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a real foreign policy buff. I, I really, that's a, a high value for me. Um, and I know, you know, his views on Russia, right, uh, are a little weak. Um, he does seem to be very proud of his son who's fighting as a mercenary with Ukrainians against, against uh, Russia. I, I was a bit surprised to, to hear about that. Um, I think he needs to wake up a little bit on, on some of these foreign policy issues. I, I think he doesn't see the uh, the fight the way I think he should regarding the resistance of the of uh, China, Russia, India, the multipolar alliance. I, I think he sees that as just another variety of the fraud of the the Great Reset. I don't think he recognize he doesn't recognize any um, authentic fight um, for humanity there. So I, I do hope that he can he can be educated, and I think he's a, a good, authentic, honest person. So good, authentic, honest people um, can always learn. They're you know I, I uh, but I, he needs he needs I think some support there um, on banking and finance. I don't really know what his views are on banking and finance. I just I full I full, I firmly support his views on uh, medical mandates and medical dictatorships. I mean his his approach to resisting that is a, is very good. I, um, but again, I, I, somebody should tell me what is, maybe you guys know what, what, what are his views on national banking, Glass-Steagall, uh, economic reform? Like, does he have a, a policy stance on these things? I, I think the question is not really, the CBDC is not about him, what's his view, but in general, what do you okay, think about it, or what you okay. learn from Alex Craner, et cetera. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Alex and I are very, very much on the same page, um, the CBDC idea um, is part and parcel of a broader digital revolution that is part of the fourth industrial revolution uh, doctrine. Um, and there's a fight around what that means exactly. Like, you know, it, it, it was understood not just by futurists of the 1950s and 60s, um, but anybody looking at the general trajectory of human civilization's relationship with technology um, and science could kind of see in varying degrees as again, early as the as the 50s and 60s, that the growth of automation, which has been something humans have been doing anyway with the industrial revolution. You know, there's the first industrial revolution, the utilization of machines to to take the place of, of human labor, which um was generally a good thing. You know, you you are now all of a sudden free to liberate your, you know, a, a society dependent upon a slave, a slave labor-based economy was now able to 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 uh, get itself off of the drug of slavery by having a machine do the work of a hundred laborers, 
whereby then the laborers would be then free to start um, utilizing mind work instead of physical work to define their identities, which then created a, a much greater cultural level of, 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 um, of improvement. So that's good. But the problem there is if you, if you have oligarchs managing an industrial policy, you'll get the sort of thing we, we read about in Charles Dickens, uh, all of, you know, the tale of two, of two cities or, or, or Oliver Swift, um, um, which is, which is basically child exploitation, you know, extracting human labor for the sake of turning work into profit with no consideration for the minds or, or culture of the, of the, of the people that's so everything can be corrupted. Everything, um, a, a, a hammer can, can, can kill your neighbor so that you could steal their, their stuff, or it can build your house. You know, it's all about the intention. So there was an, an understanding that the, the orientation of, of computing technology, digital computers, um, automation was going to result at um, a certain point in a, in, a, in a form of a crisis due to the fact that many of the repetitive manual jobs that were done by people could be done by computers. Um, and again, that's not a big surprise, but it could be done very efficiently. Uh, so, you know, we, we're at a point now where we're, we're sort of slamming into that transition point whereby the, the, the technology is advanced enough that many, many things that we currently take for granted could be done by computers or by, by machines animated by some algorithm that, you know, does something repetitive. It, it doesn't mean that human beings will ever be irrelevant because at the end of the day, there's always new things that we're going to encounter that no computer has experienced. There's always new discoveries that have to be made at all times to overcome the limits to growth that no, no computer can make because computers can only use deductive or inductive reasoning. You know, they can't use uh, more than that. So it's that more than that that allows human beings to make the discoveries, which is why holes in the universe are more than the sum of their parts. A computer can just deal with holes that are the sum of their parts by an assumption that the reality is not that I am not the simple sum total of the cells and atoms making up my body right? There's something more that makes me look in the mirror and say, hi, I'm Matthew. I have this soul. I have these metaphysical components, right? Um, so computers don't do that. They're, they're very, they're very material. It's kind of like dialectic materialism or cybernet. It's the same thing. It's their, their, they, computers are wired to interpret quantity as governing quality. So you always need the human, the human element um, driving that. So today I, I think that uh, CBDCs are being brought online primarily by the Davos crowd to, to be a part of the thing we had discussed, you know, the, the mass behavioral modification of humanity under a depopulated um, uh, zoo that would eat bugs, no longer eat, you know, meats or things that cause methane and, uh, and you know, get our injections of whatever genetic, mod you know, genetic modification we're supposed to put into our bodies. Um, that's one ideology governing one idea of the central bank digital currencies that will be brought online when the current banking system blows out and the current banking system will blow out. It can do nothing but blow out. So we will get a new banking system. That's going to happen. But when you hear the idea of digital currencies, um, like I said, in Eurasia being discussed or the idea of fourth industrial revolution, it's not look at what the ideas, designs, policies, and intentions are regarding the application of these things. Like for example, um, AI, machine learning, um, automation, 3D printing. These are, these are components of it. China is just in the midst of building. They've, they've built five of the 10 largest hydroelectric dams in the world in the past 20 years. They've also built about 38,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. 
the U.S. has hardly any. Canada has none. Now, right now, one of the largest dams is a 380-meter um, high dam being built up in China. Um, there's no human element to it. It's all being, it's halfway done. It's being built up through 3D printing, like going through layers of the dam being built up with like automated machines packing in the cement going through, right? And then another layer is, is added. Um, and it's being organized or coordinated, very, very complex process by certain algorithms that are a form of AI. Um, the outcome of having this dam built is going to be massive flood controls, huge irrigation, a doubling of food output within the, the farming regions in the adjacent zones around that, that zone. And um, uh, I think something like eight gigawatts of energy for industry and civilian use. That's a very different application of the idea of the fourth industrial revolution compared to those same technologies being used in the West, which is primarily to create systems of control and command over dumbed down, depopulated people who are su supposed to have less energy, less food. Um, you know, we're blowing up our dams in California. They, they've spent $500 billion million dollars in California blowing up four high demolishing four hydroelectric dams built up in the sixties in order to free the deserts and bring back the natural desert ecosystems, which should, should have, should never have been green. You're going to kill thousands of farmers, right? Uh, and you're going to create a massive scarcity, which will justify more depopulation in the West. Whereas in China, the application is to create more abundance. So again, whether a currency is shaped by gold or by, um, plastic or shoestring shoelaces. Um, I don't care. I, it's not the plastic or the shoe, the shoelaces or the gold or the silver that gives value to a currency. It's what are you doing as a society um, that then get, infuses value into whatever, whether it's a digital currency, whether it's tied to wheat, whether whatever, but it's, are you doing things that are in the objective reality that benefits people and creates abundance and overcome scarcity? Or are you doing things that are creating scarcity, shutting down the lives of people and nations? You know, are, which one of those? So I think that the central bank digital currency thing has to be evaluated from that, um, that framework. Otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm generally against it to the degree that I see it being animated by a death cult. You know, you want to make a comment on America's uh, Trump's America's first yeah, yeah, that's Just good. Yeah, I, 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 I generally support Trump. So uh, thank you very much. And I'd like to, I guess, in, in everyone's quoting, including you putting this in writing, um, President Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address, the famous one, because I yeah. like that too. And he says, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought by the military industrial complex, the potential for disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted, only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. So Matthew, do you want to say more about where people can connect with you? And I thank you so much again. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good quote. 
Um, uh, yeah, well, you know, they, they can go to, um, as, as you pointed out, the uh, CanadianPatriot.org is, is a, my main uh, Canadian geopolitical website. And um, the books that my wife and I have, have published are all very easy to find on there as, as either paperbacks uh, to, that can unfortunately only be purchased on Amazon as, as of this moment. They, they just make it so damn easy. Um, and uh, or, or PDF. And uh, otherwise, Substack is uh, another way you can you can support the work, follow our writings. Um, there's free and paid upgrades. And uh, Rising Tide Foundation, as you pointed out at the beginning, is is a sort of more educational, cultural um, website, which uh, we're trying to sort of experiment with to see if we can create the basis of a more healthy approach to education. Um, we got a bunch of projects on. Um, different observatory projects we're working on right now and, and other things. So that's, that's risingtidefoundation.net. And we, we host weekly seminars every Sunday. So if people do want to uh, listen in or receive the invitation, either get the paid upgrade to our Substacks or send us an email to info at risingtidefoundation.net. And we'll, we'll put you on the, the mailing list for that. And to all of our viewers and supporters, and um, you can always check each and every one of us um, outlet in Bitshoot, Roy, Colan, uh, for John, Cavos, and uh, individuals who are with us. And uh, it will be like, we try to be in every platform that hasn't censored us. So just keep trying, we'll be there. Okay, thank you so much and take care of yourselves. Have a good evening, good night, whatever you share, share, share. Take care. All right, bye guys.